Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So it's interesting now what happens here in the beginning of chapter 4. We're going to go through 38 verses today. I know it seems like a, a lot, but we're going to move pretty quickly. And then we'll just we'll dwell on some of the main points that I feel that the Lord had uh, brought to my attention this week. So let's, let's start just by reading the first couple of verses here in, in John chapter 4. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself did not baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. So things are heating up as Jesus' popularity is growing rapidly in the Jerusalem area. By, by this point, John the Baptist has actually been arrested. It says this in Matthew 4, verse 12. And Jesus decides, okay, things are getting a little bit tense here with these people who are following the way or what are later going to be called Christians. So he decides that it's probably best to head back to his home turf, Galilee, and let things just kind of cool off for a little bit. Jesus did this because he knew that the Pharisees viewed him as a threat. And if he continued to teach and perform signs and wonders and miracles that close to Jerusalem, he might be crucified prematurely. See, Jesus knew God's timing and his plan for his life. And and the the time for Jesus' great sacrifice had not yet come. So he headed back to Galilee for a while so that God's timing for his life would not be disturbed. Verse 4. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to to the Samaritan village of Sichar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at this time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Okay, so a little bit of geography lesson here. They don't officially call these places provinces necessarily, but the Bible refers to different regions of the country of of Israel. So Jerusalem is in a region called Judea. Directly north of that is a region called Samaria. And directly north of that was Jesus' destination, Galilee, right? So these are kind of like three provinces or states in Israel. Many Jews who would, who would need to travel from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north actually chose to go around Samaria in the middle because the Jews and the Samaritans basically hated one another. And this animosity that they shared was a result of the Samaritans not being pure-blooded Jews, but rather Jews who had intermarried with people of other countries and religions. But Jesus didn't hold this animosity in his heart. So he leads his disciples right through the heart of Samaria, which was actually a bit of a dangerous endeavor because the the animosity between Jews and Samaritans uh, turned violent many times in their history. So they're in Samaria nonetheless, and now a weary traveler, Jesus stops at a well to rest. When a Samaritan woman shows up at the well outside of her village, Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And it was just Jesus and this woman at this point, because like the story said, the disciples, Jesus had sent them into town to buy food. And after Jesus asks this Samaritan woman for a drink, we hear a Samaritan's, like a Jewish arch rival's response. Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, 
and I am a Samaritan woman, why are you asking me for a drink? So she knew that this wasn't a normal practice for a Jew to interact with a Samaritan, much less a Samaritan woman. She was well aware of the hostility that existed between her people and the Jewish people. And on top of that, Jewish ceremonial law actually considered Samaritan women to be unclean in God's eyes. That's quite, quite a way to look at a whole group of people, right? And a Jewish law was actually made by the Pharisees at one point that said that Jews and Samaritans could not drink water from the same container. So we see, we see here the cultural context of just how shocking it is that Jesus would ask this woman for a drink of water, right? Two major cultural breaches. So puzzled at this, this breach of the cultural norm, the woman asks Jesus why he's asking her for a drink. Verse 10, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. So this verse for me is why this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It kind of in the last few years, it's grown on me a lot. And every time I read it, there's something new and something that is just awesome that God speaks to me about. And this verse to me is kind of one of the most amazing things that I've read in the Bible in the last several months. So here Jesus is taking a normal conversation, right? And he's using it to begin to speak about spiritual things. Jesus did something similar with Nicodemus in John 3. Remember, Nicodemus said, hey, yeah, you're this teacher. You're this great guy. And Jesus says, you must be born from above, right? He just transitions the the topic of conversation somewhere else. So when Jesus does these things, it's like this shift in conversation. I like to call it a segue to salvation. Jesus has asked this woman about water. She asks why he's asking her for water. And then he steers the conversation towards spiritual things by saying that God has a gift for you. And if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water and I would give it to you. What an amazing way to to use something as ordinary as water and then begin to talk about the beautiful thing that God wants to do for people. So what is living water anyway? Jesus is offering this to her. Living water, friends, is eternal life. This is what Jesus came to earth to give to all people. And he's, he's giving it a nickname, another title. He's giving eternal, eternal life the name living water. And the woman responds by saying, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? Who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Okay, so the the woman doesn't understand what Jesus is saying to her quite yet. She's thinking about literal water still. And she points out the fact that Jesus is unequipped with the tools necessary in order to get water from a deep well, right? And then she seems to get a little bit defensive. Remember, the Jews and the Samaritans, they don't like each other, right? And it's because the Jews said all these things about the Samaritans. They're half-breeds. They're unclean. They're not pure. All these kind of things. So she asks Jesus, how can you offer anything better than the well that Jacob gave to my people? So why does she bring up Jacob's name here? Have you ever thought about that? It's because the Samaritan people, they actually traced their lineage back to Jacob. And perhaps she thought, oh great, here's another Jew who thinks he's better than all of us Samaritans. 
Anyway, we have lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just like they do. So just cool your jets, your mystery man. Maybe that's what she's thinking. I don't know. But in, in that defensiveness, Jesus doesn't get offended. He just pushes past it and he goes with it, right? So Jesus replies in verse 13 saying, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become, or it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So Jesus starts explaining the difference here between the water that Jacob has in his well and the living water that he can give. Jacob gave them a well that they can drink from, but they will become thirsty again because those are the physical properties of water. That's just how it works, right? Jesus, however, will give spiritual water in a way that causes us to be completely satisfied. It will be a continual source of joy and peace and love directly from God to us. And this spring of living water is actually placed within us. So that speaks to the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Something that that the world hasn't known in the same way that we know it today, but that's what Jesus is getting at. So Jesus is speaking to her in an effort to appeal to her heart's desire for peace with God and eternal satisfaction. So intrigued at this offer and eager to receive it, the woman responds, verse 15, well, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Okay, so the woman's responding positively. That's good, right? She, she sees like living water. It sounds all right. I, I think I could go for this. But she still doesn't understand fully that Jesus isn't talking about a literal water source. He keeps talking. She, she thinks about it's literal water, but it's, it's this spiritual satisfaction, this eternal life that Jesus is talking about. You know, it's interesting if we look back at verse 10, Jesus said that she would ask for living water and he would give it to her, right? So he said that you're going to need to do that. That's what's required for eternal life. And here we are just a few sentences later, and she's already saying, okay, I don't even know exactly what this is. At least that's what Jesus is and our interpretation is, but she knows that she wants it. So what Jesus said she would do, ask for living water, that's what she's doing already. So it's exciting. The segue to salvation, this change in conversation, is already starting to to yield a little bit of fruit, right? Her willingness is opening up. So then it's kind of interesting because we think like the woman doesn't understand fully. And then Jesus says something that seemingly comes kind of out of the blue in verse 16. Go and get your husband. Jesus told her, I don't have a husband. The woman replied, Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. So Jesus is demonstrating here his power as an all-knowing God. Just like he did with Simon and Nathaniel towards the end of John 1. Remember when those two future disciples came to him and, and Jesus spoke about Simon's future and he spoke about Nathaniel's past and, and they were wowed. It's like, how did you know these things about me, right? That's what they would have been thinking. And in the same way, with the same authority, Jesus speaks to this woman about things that he had no reason to know unless there was something about him that was different than anyone else who had ever talked to her. He knows every detail about this woman's immoral path through life, but he doesn't condemn her for it. He just reveals that he knows everything about her. 
But in Jesus talking to her about her immoral life that she has lived, he actually is doing her a tremendous favor. He shows her that the living water that he's talking about, that she now wants, he's revealing to her that it's actually something that she needs. She has a moral and spiritual deficiency that she cannot have satisfied unless living water is given to her by the only source of living water that this world has ever known, Jesus Christ. So now Jesus really has her attention, right? I mean, if someone came to you or me and told us all about our lives and we had never met them before, and I've heard of stories where that has happened in modern day times, like in the last couple of decades, they would certainly have my attention. And I'm sure that would be the same for you. And God would speak in those moments. So now that her attention is clearly heightened, she responds in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Kind of a funny response, right? So the woman doesn't deny anything that Jesus has told her about her life. She doesn't defend herself and the sinful choices that she makes. But perhaps, I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in her shoes here. Perhaps she's a little... Uncomfortable. It's like, whoa, this guy knows everything. I got to change the topic here or like try to skate past this somehow. Jesus was speaking about her life and now she's talking about a disagreement in worship that Jews and Samaritans had. But you know what? It's interesting. Like Jesus doesn't say, hang on a second here. Don't try to avoid what I'm talking about. We're talking about you. Now he doesn't get like that. Like that's the neat thing about Jesus. Like his love is so genuine, like he doesn't try to, to force someone into dealing with their life. He, he doesn't want to come and twist anyone's arm. He actually just wants to present us with the facts. And that's how the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit works in conviction, right? He just presents us with the facts. Hey, this is who I've asked you to be. This is where you are. What do you want to do? What, what's your desire? I know what my desire is for you, but you know, the ball's in your court. I'm, I'm not going to force you to do anything. I just love how Jesus' gentle correction and gentle shepherding of our lives is something that we see here in this woman, but each and every one of us has access to this gentle shepherd today as well. So Jesus just goes with her kind of abrupt and somewhat awkward topic change. In verse 21, Jesus replies saying, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus explains that the location of worship that this woman seems to be fixated on, is it the temple? Is it Mount Gerizim? No, Jesus explains it's actually going to be irrelevant very, very quickly. This is a foreshadowing because when Christ dies on the cross, what happens in the temple, right? That curtain that separated people from the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And what that symbolizes is that access to God 
is now for everybody. And it's not restricted to the temple in Jerusalem. But now, through Christ's death and resurrection, he comes to live in us. That's such a beautiful thing, right? We're going to get into that here in a second. This, this curtain is what prevented people from worshiping God freely. They had to be in the right place. But through Jesus' presence, and, or through Jesus, the presence of God doesn't dwell in a temple anymore. It's come to dwell in the hearts of people. So if you think about, like, back in those days, everyone was so fixated on holy places, a mountain, a temple, a certain location, right? But now your heart has become the temple of worship for the God that we all love and adore. Like, that's such an amazing thing, right? Like, and it's not something that we should just say, oh, wow, that's really cool. I don't really get that. But, but like, stop to think. Your heart... The, the place where you think and feel and have emotions, where you love, where you struggle, all these things, like the, the very core of your being, that's where Christ has chosen to abide. That's where he wants to live. So now what that does is it gives us this tremendous access to God. Wherever we go, whatever we do, he is there. And how we worship him matters in here more than it does in the room that we're in. Another question here is, why does, the Samar- why does Jesus say you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship? Well, it's interesting. One of the main differences between the Jews and the Samaritans is that the Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament books. All of the books of poetry and the prophets are things that the Samaritans totally disregarded. See, the Samaritans, they, they were heavy-duty Moses people, right? So they just followed the books of the Bible that Moses wrote, which is the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So while there were more prophets that God was revealing more details about the Messiah to, they were disregarding all those things. So Isaiah, who said so much about this coming king and gave us these wonderful descriptions of Jesus, the Psalms, where David is speaking, and it's clear that there's, there's this foreshadowing of a, of a savior who's going to come. The Samaritans missed out on all of that. They knew that there was a Messiah, but they didn't know what he would look like. And that's why Jesus could say with confidence, salvation comes through the Jews. Why? Because the Bible says so. The part of the Bible that the Samaritans disregarded had the facts that they really needed to not only look for a Messiah, but to look for a Messiah that was like Jesus. So what does Jesus mean when he says, worship in spirit and truth? This is another part of his interesting answer here to this worship question that this woman asked. So worshiping the Father in spirit refers to the importance of sincerity and love. I really think it's actually quite simple. It's the heart that the Father desires us to have as we worship Him. But He also desires, or He also says that true worshipers worship in truth. So there's a spirit or a heart side, and there's a truth or a knowledge or understanding side. The worship that God desires can't come from just a heart that is sincere. Because I could say, you know, I've heard about this this thing called God, or this guy called Jesus. I don't really know anything about him, but he sounds awesome. So I'm just going to choose to love him and worship him. But you know what? Is God going to be pleased if I worship him, but I have no idea what he's like or who he is? No. And probably my worship is going to be frustrating because I'll be worshiping something that's practically anonymous. So that's why Jesus says it can't just be spirit, but it's spirit and truth. 
But then you could go to the other extreme and you could say, okay, well, truth, 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 knowledge, understanding, revelation, wisdom, all these things. That's what I want. And then I'll be able to worship God. Not without the right heart, we can't, right? So it's important for us to understand the Jesus that we're worshiping, right? To understand that he is the son of God, that he has come to reveal the father to us, that he is the only way to salvation, that he is the source of living water and eternal life. When we know those things and understand that he has, he has a relationship with God and that he wants to share a relationship with us, it's like, oh, all these things that I understand, that I know about God, they actually cause me to love him more. So because of the truth, I can worship God with real genuine love. And when I worship God with real genuine love in my spirit, then what happens is, is I, I actually seek more truth because someone that you love is someone that you want to know more about, right? So what Jesus is explaining to this woman is actually so brilliant. It's this two-sided coin of what the worship that God the Father wants to have happen in our lives. So again in this moment, again, yet again, Jesus has taken a question that the woman asks and he provides an even better answer than what she was hoping for. This is yet another segue to salvation. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I just love that line because she, it's like, he's actually right there, right? You know, it's, it's just kind of funny. And it's like, it makes me laugh. We get the inside scoop. So perhaps still confused, this woman points to the promised Messiah, knowing that he will be able to clear everything up for her. Oh man, if you only knew, lady, right? And then the most incredible thing happens. This is, uh, like verse 10 stood out to me huge. And then this next one, just fasten your seatbelts here, Okay. So, so Jesus is explaining all these things about what God wants to do. Clearly, the woman doesn't know that Jesus is God's son, the Messiah. And so she says, well, hey, when he shows up, you know, we'll get everything straightened out then. And then in verse 26, Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. What's really neat about this verse is that this is the first time that Jesus has revealed in the first person who he is. Remember when he was talking to Nicodemus? He referred to himself in the third person often. And we're like, come on, Nicodemus, you can do it. Just connect the dots, right? I don't know why Jesus did the third person thing with Nicodemus, but then here in this moment, with a woman who would have probably felt gross about her life, would have probably felt condemned and judged by most other people in her life, especially a Jewish male. Jesus reveals himself to her. What a a beautiful, merciful, amazing thing that Jesus has done here, friends. Like, you can see it clearly, it it affects me, and I, I just think it's so awesome. Just think about this woman, right? She knows the Messiah is coming. But because her people have rejected most of the greatest descriptions about the Messiah, she doesn't understand who he is going to be like. But she does understand that he's going to clear things up, that he's going to bring understanding to all these mysteries that maybe her and her fellow people have struggled with. Uh, So the Messiah isn't a new concept to her. 
The woman is even expecting him. And that's a good thing. Like with, with the little bits that she has, she's looking forward in faith to what God wants to reveal. And then Jesus actually reveals himself to her. I am what you've been waiting for your whole life. You know, I try to, I try to share stories and sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to understand concepts like this because ever since we were little, if we grew up in church, we, uh, we saw in our little colorful Sunday school material or on the flannel graph, we said, oh, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. We know him. It's not a mystery. This is what he's been like, right? And we get the hindsight angle, but sometimes there's, there's moments in life where we can kind of take a comparison from today and put ourselves in the shoes of this woman, right? So I was thinking about what is it like to expect something, to know that it's coming, but to not know what it's going to look like or be able to recognize it until it's right there, right? So when Karen and I were dating, I, uh, one Saturday we went to Winnipeg and, and we went to a mall because that's what she wanted to do. And we ended up looking around at some, some jewelry stores. Because, you know, we'd been dating for a while and we loved each other. And we had talked like, oh, you know, what do you think? Would you, would you want to be married to me? Please, I hope. You know, those kind of things. And I said, yes, I would. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we're, we're looking at some jewelry stores and, and Karen's, you know, pointing out some things. Oh, yeah, I like that. Don't get me that. You know, like all these kind of things. She was very gentle and humble about it. And I said, great. Here's my price range. You know, like these kind of things. And we're just having fun and just being weird and stuff. And so in that moment, we were obviously on the same page. We, we both knew that we wanted to be married so that she then, as the woman, she had this notion in her mind, okay, someday Jeff is going to ask me to marry him. She didn't know what it would be like. I didn't tell her, okay, get ready, because on this day, at this time, in this way, I'm going to do this for you. She didn't know any of those details. So we, we returned home from Winnipeg. We went back to Winkler to our separate homes where we lived. And a couple weeks later, me and my buddy, Ryan, who turned out to be one of the, the groomsmen at my wedding, we got in my vehicle. We went into Winnipeg. He came for moral support, maybe financial if necessary. And we, we bought this ring I bought this ring that I was going to give to Karen one day. I, I had it for a couple of weeks. I was just trying to think, like, how should we do this? What should it look like? And so it was kind of fun. I was living in a rental house at the time. And uh, just like a half a block away from my rental house was a house I was actually going to buy. And this house that I was going to buy, it was a condition. It had to be moved. So I was getting a new basement built, and this house is going to be moved onto this new foundation. But what I wanted to do in order to save a whole bunch of car rides back and forth across town and moving all my stuff is I borrowed a wheelbarrow from my dad and just like wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow we loaded stuff in there from the rental house we brought it over to the house that would be moved we we were bringing it into the spare room at the back and then when the house was moved all my stuff would be moved with it right so Karen was helping me out she was awesome and and you know we were we brought this big wheelbarrow full and then I went in with the load and she kind of was following me and and we kind of got on this pattern where I was inside and she was out at the wheelbarrow then we pass each other in the hallway and doing this thing. So it's like, okay, this is the moment. So I, I got into the, the spare room at the back. I still remember the beautiful red shaggy carpet that it had. And the, it was like you go to the end of the hall and you hang a hard left and then you're in this room. So as soon as she left, I got down on one knee. I pulled this ring out of my pocket. So then she comes down the hall with this armload full of stuff. And she sees me down with this ring right? She's like, oh boy, 
Maybe this is it. I didn't know that this would be it, but maybe this is the moment. I knew it was coming, but I didn't know what it would look like, but maybe this is it, right? And I said, oh, I had this brilliant line. (laughs) She's the one laughing the hardest. I said, out of all the things that we're moving into this house today, the only one I want to move in here is you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You bet. And she melted, and I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. So, like, it's, it's moments like this in our lives, right? It's moments like this that kind of give us a glimpse, perhaps, of, of the shock or the amazement that this woman at the well might have had. She knew that she was looking for something, but she didn't know what it was, what it was going to look like. And this whole time that she's talking to Jesus, she didn't even recognize it, that this was the man, this was the Savior, the Messiah, that her and her people had been waiting for. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it, it's... This is it? Like, I'm the one? Oh, wow. Like, amazing, right? Verse 27. This, mo- this amazing moment happens. Jesus reveals, I am the Messiah. I don't know if this is before she could respond, but just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. So the disciples are shocked at this apparent cultural faux pas that Jesus has committed, right? The woman leaves amazed. She goes to the village and tells everyone that she can find. And and it says that all the people from the village came streaming out to see Jesus for themselves. So, so often this is where churches stop looking at this story. And I I get it, right? Like this is amazing already. We could, we could easily stop here. Woman lost in sin experiences Jesus. Jesus changes her life. Whole town comes to know Jesus through her. Totally awesome, right? Yes. But at this point in the story, the gospel writer John, he gives us a glimpse into the purpose of Jesus calling people to follow him as disciples. Jesus isn't just focused on helping people receive eternal life through him. Of course Of course that's his heart. He wants all people to be saved. The Bible says that. But at the same time, he is also preparing us, and in those days, just a few men so far, to be his disciples and to bring even more people to eternal life. So verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food that you know nothing about. So after another segue to salvation, that's exactly what just happened here. Jesus took a a conversation about food, and he's already steering it towards spiritual things. Jesus doesn't let this present conversation or the questions or the misunderstandings of others dictate what he is going to say. He speaks to what his disciples need to hear. Verse 33, did someone bring him food while we were gone? His disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained. This is what he meant when he said, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. Okay, so is Jesus purely speaking just about an analogy here? Or is there something else going on? Think about what's happening, right? The woman went back into Sichar. 
And now people are streaming out across the fields to come to see Jesus. And he says, look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. Usually it takes months when we plant a seed. And Karen, and Karen I was going to say Karen and I, I didn't do anything. But Karen already started some things inside for our garden that we want to get going this summer. We're just so excited. And usually it takes months, right? Months for things to grow and to be nurtured in order for them to be harvested and for you to be able to enjoy what that plant was supposed to give you. But Jesus has just planted his love in this woman's heart and she has gone to her village to share it with everybody else. Jesus is telling his disciples that the harvest of these people's souls is ready right now. Moments from planting to reaping. Verse 36, Jesus continues, he says, The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others are all, had already done the work. And now you will get to gather the harvest. Man, there's another great reward, for, or there is a great reward for those who work in the way that Jesus wants us to, in the way that he's modeling for us. He, he asks us to invite him into, his heart, into our hearts so that we might become active. And it seems that Jesus is taking away any doubt from what he's talking about with this harvest analogy. The fruit that we take in, the harvest that we bring in, is people's lives. As they believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. Those who tell people about Jesus and those who help them to believe in Jesus for themselves are both full of joy. Whether they get the ball rolling or whether they get to seal the deal, they're both full of joy. In my life, friends, I've told hundreds of people the good news about Jesus Christ. And, and only some of them have chosen in that moment to believe. Maybe there were dozens of people ahead of me who had already talked to that person about who Christ was, and now I have the joy of finishing the work and bringing them into the kingdom of God, right? And there's many other times though, where I've been the one, perhaps the first, perhaps the second, perhaps the tenth, I don't know, but I got to be the one who shares this good news with Jesus, and I pray that down the line someone else gets to seal the deal and harvest these people into the kingdom of God. But no matter where we are in the spectrum, the seed planter or the harvester, friends, there's always joy. When someone chooses to receive eternal life. Am I right? Yeah, it doesn't matter which stage we're at. And that's why we all need to engage in this work. Because we don't know how many times that seed needs to be planted. Maybe it's been plucked away and we need to plant again. Maybe we need to nurture it. Maybe we need to water it, fertilize, whatever. It's going to take a whole church in order to help people know who Jesus is. Something that stands out to me from this passage is that there are three main components of the life of faith here for us to observe. There's salvation, right? Which is what Jesus talks about when he, when he offers this woman living water. And we see Jesus urging this woman to salvation as he makes this offer to her. We all must humbly face the fact that we need living water from Jesus. Every single one of us. We need the eternal life that only he can provide. And once we believe in him, we receive his offer. It comes into our lives and then it, it's this bubbling fountain within, within us. 
The other thing, though, after this salvation piece, it, it, there's the worship, right, that God talks about, worshiping in spirit and truth. Once we've believed and received salvation from Jesus, what direction is our life supposed to take? What's supposed to happen now? Well, once this eternal life comes and, and plants itself within us, then our worship of God can truly happen in an authentic way. And when we are saved by the Messiah who loves us, we in turn learn to love him more. And as we learn to love him more, we just understand more and more and more. Oh yeah, Jesus, you're, you're even more worthy of the praise that I should give you than I thought. It's kind of like when you get married, you think you love someone so much on your wedding day. And then you realize after 10 or 20 years, man, they've been putting up with me for a long time. This person's way better than I even thought. And it's, it's the same way with Jesus, right? We, we go through life with him. It's like, wow, Lord, I've not really been a hallmark disciple this whole time. And I've struggled. My faith has been challenged. I've had these moments where I just don't know. But man, you've never given up on me. I know that about you because it says so in your word. You're going to finish what you start. You're the author and perfecter of my faith. Thank you, Jesus. I love you more today than I did when you first saved me. So that's when that worship comes in. We get salvation. Then worship comes. And then it says that there's supposed to be a harvest taking place that we are contributing to. Fruit harvested is people brought to eternal life. As Jesus showed us when his disciples returned from buying food, there is a role that we are meant to play beyond worship. Of course, we're supposed to adore the Lord. But we are also meant to be a harvester that brings people to a place, from a place where we used to be to the place where we now are. Right? And that's the joy of, of partnering with Jesus. To me, these are the ABCs of what it means to become Jesus' disciples. Accept Jesus' offer of eternal life. Become one who worships in spirit and truth and commit to the work of bringing others to eternal life. If we boil it down to be simple like that, it's actually a little bit more, oh, okay, I, I can wrap my head around that. The Samaritans and the disciples, they all learned something incredible that day. Jesus brought two cultures together who were divided by hatred. He lovingly and patiently spoke to the truest needs of the heart of the woman he met. He included his disciples in this ministry as a way to teach them that, what, that this is what the rest of your lives is supposed to look like. I think this story is brilliant and it speaks for itself. 